Welcome to the Leaders Table podcast, where policy leaders share the inside stories of their impact on the world, and we capture the secrets behind their success to help you increase yours. Education, diversity, and equity, core American issues. What are the things that I should be pushing for to inspire a movement? Let's, let's dig into that. Here on the Leaders Table podcast, it's our job to dissect leaders in policy and education to dig into the practices, tools, tips, and actionable strategies of their success to empower you. We've had a lot of conversations about innovation and entrepreneurship at the Leaders Table recently, and this episode is no exception. Stacey Childress flips the Leaders Table upside down, sharing lessons from her role as CEO of the New Schools Venture Fund. From why finding a learner's mindset is more important than being right, to avoiding getting super scheduled with meetings, Stacy's advice is going to help reframe your workday and maybe even change your career. As always, we're eager to hear who you'd like us to invite to the leader's table and what you'd like us to ask them. Email your ideas for future guests and fun interview questions to leaderstable at educationalequity.org. And now here's Stacy Childress at the leader's table. Stacey Childress, thank you for joining the Leaders' Table. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So great to have you. You were recommended to, for us to talk with by a previous podcast guest, and I am particularly inspired by your, the work that you've done at the cross-section of education and entrepreneurship. So just to kind of set the table, now you're, today you're CEO at the New Schools Venture Fund. Uh, you have also have led the K-12 Next Generation Learning Team at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, you've been on, on the faculty at the Harvard Business School, where you wrote about entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship and public education. Um, and your course course has been taken by over a thousand students. You've also been awarded for excellent teaching by those students. And uh, you're also a co-founder of an enterprise yourself, uh, I understand an enterprise software company that also spent um, that uh, spent 10 years on the Fortune 500 company list in sales and general management. And on top of all that, you also were a Texas public high school teacher. So we look forward to getting to know you a bit. Well, thanks uh, for that. The one uh, adjustment I'll make there is I did start a company with mm-hmm. some friends uh, years ago. It was an enterprise software company. Uh, it was a short-lived fun ride um, at the height of the internet boom. Um, and uh, when I say the height of it, I mean it was just before it started to unravel. <laughs> So uh, we did not make the Fortune 500 uh, company list through that company, but I, I was uh, on, a, on a team uh, at a Fortune 500 company for about a decade uh, mm-hmm. before that in sales and general management. So just wanted to make sure, just wanted sure. to make sure to correct that for the record. Absolutely. Thank you. So when most people talk about education, education change, they're talking about education reform. You very uniquely write and think and teach about education and entrepreneurship. Why is that? Well, um, you know, I, uh, having had some entrepreneurial experience myself, um, and, um, also, you know, as you, as you pointed out, having taught in the system and, and having been around it for a long time, um, believe that, you know, we need a combination of efforts to really create schools in every neighborhood that work better for every kid. And, um, certainly there's a lot of work to be done to, um, adjust, the system as it is and, and make it work a little bit better. Um, the, those efforts are super important and lots of people are engaged in them. But I think just like in any endeavor of society, whether in the private sector or the nonprofit sector, there, there are also room, there's also room for people who 
have new ideas and are willing to kind of take some, you know, personal and professional risks to try to figure out new ways to solve old, long-standing problems. Um, and so, you know, my my personal choice there is, you know, been been you know very much uh, driven by my in my own interests, how I like to spend my time and my career, but then also just the, um, you know, the promise and possibility that comes from. Um, again, trying new things, uh, you know, being willing to put it all on the line to see if your new idea will work. And, um, uh, you know, if we think about how change happens, as I said, in other parts of society, whether, you know, industries in the private sector or uh, part of social change, um, you know, I, I like to say that improvement is often um, kind of a step function rather than linear, where things move along at some pace of improvement for a while. And then often it is those innovators and entrepreneurs that help us take a big leap forward and then more incremental progress. Um, And so again, kind of driven by my own experience and interests, um, I have, you know, over the course of my career, certainly gravitated to the more entrepreneurial um, notion. And for, for, you know, for me, I'm, I'm very much, I'll say in the kind of Harvard business school tradition of, what entrepreneurship is. And, you know, the, the thinking that grew up there is that it's not so much about starting a new organization, although entrepreneurs often or maybe usually do. It's more about mindsets and practices uh, of, of management. And, you know, the way we talk about entrepreneurship is um, um, the pursuit of an opportunity and in our business, obviously, right, an opportunity to create change, the pursuit of an opportunity to create change without having the existing resources to create that change. And so the act of entrepreneurship is getting going on your idea um, to create change and mobilizing the support and resources you need as you go along and as you, um, as you create results rather than saying, okay, what resources do I have? Well, given those resources, what kind of change can I make? So that's, you know, in my kind of worldview or, or view of change management, the way I think about entrepreneurship, it's getting going, trying to make the change you seek in the world, um, without waiting for authorization (laughs) or resources. And then part of your job as an entrepreneur is to mobilize that permission and those resources as you go along so that you get to continue to, you know, to put your idea into practice. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you organize those principles in the work you're doing at New, Vent- New Schools Venture Fund? Yeah, well, you know, we uh, we do support education entrepreneurs, um, and you know, many of the entrepreneurial teams that we support, we say those are teams of educators because you know most of them, the vast majority of them, uh, have worked in, in, uh, education full time. Uh, and the, and and the majority of those have spent some time in, in classrooms. And so the way we kind of organize those ideas and put them into practice as if you will, an investment strategy, and we're a nonprofit. So all of the money we deploy, uh, at least in our current, um, investment strategy is, you know, through grant dollars. Um, we, um, look for, you know, it's like, you know, people with great ideas, um, for uh, how they might create change through new organizations. So, so, so we support people with ideas for new organizations in the very earliest stages, you know, sometimes literally just in the idea stage with a very short concept paper, um, and we can support them through business planning. Sometimes people come to us, you know, with a, a startup plan or a business plan, uh, and we, you know, support their, um, their, their launch, you know, their new operations. Um, and, uh, Sometimes we support new uh, uh, activities within existing organizations. Um, uh, so we think entrepreneurship doesn't always have to be creating a brand new organization that didn't exist before. But sometimes it is a you know true act and, and courageous act of entrepreneurship to create um, a new way of doing work or a new initiative within uh, uh, within an existing organization. Um, and so. Right now, we have um, a focus on helping people um, design and launch new innovative schools um, that certainly, you know, create better academic results for kids, but also expand their definition of success to uh, include other kinds of mindsets, habits, and skills that kids need to be successful over the long haul. We're also supporting people in existing schools, 
both in charter networks and districts to reinvent their existing school, reimagine it so that it is, um, you know, more in line with you know, our principles of what innovative schools look like. And then we also support people who are creating um, new technology tools and new um, services to help schools make that transition from our more traditional models of schools to, uh, to innovative ones. Um, and then we have a third investment area that we call our diverse leaders portfolio. And the team that runs that portfolio um, is looking for entrepreneurs who are creating new organizations or new initiatives in existing organizations that strengthen the pipeline of diverse leaders, Black and Latino leaders specifically, for um, entrepreneurship and senior leadership in the in the education sector. And you know, for us, the principles of entrepreneurship that I laid out earlier that apply here are, you know. In, in no, none of these instances, you know, where we see great teams that we that decide to support, is everything already figured out, right? Um, they haven't been authorized <laughs> by, you know, anyone in a position of authority to do what they're, you know, what they what they want to do. They have a ton of, you know, energy and passion, uh, you know, deep dissatisfaction with the way things are today and, and ideas about how to really make a difference uh, for kids. And so what we bring to the table, you know, certainly some, some money uh, to help them get started, but also the way we've built our team is to be able to really go on that entrepreneurial journey with the people that we support in order to help them make, you know, have the best potential to make uh, or the best shot at making their idea a reality in a way that really does uh, work better, work better for kids. And so um, we, um, don't, uh, um, you know, sometimes I used to work, as you know, I used to work in a foundation and um, it was a great experience and I'm proud of the work we did there. But often when you're, when you're at a more traditionally organized foundation, you know, you make a grant to someone and then hold them accountable for doing every single set thing they said they would do. And it's on them to do those mm -hmm. things, right? That's the accountability relationship. And, and you know, that, that can work very well. Um, in venture philanthropy, which is what New Schools is, um, our success in theirs, you know, the success of our entrepreneurs are entirely intertwined. And so we are in the game with them, helping them be successful, uh, which mm -hmm. means spending a lot of time, you know, with our entrepreneurs, uh, both advising them ourselves, but then also connecting them with other uh, experts, um, uh, resources that can help them, uh, customers potentially, right. If they've got a service or a tool, um, that, that they, that can help them really, you know, bring their idea to life. Mm -hmm. You know, when I think about, um, venture funding, right. When any entrepreneurship thinks about venture funding, they think about bringing money in. Maybe the, 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 the funder is thinking about putting money in, uh, helping to grow, helping to build capacity and then taking, a return at the end, and so yeah. there's a there's a sense of accountability for those uh, for that investment. It, when you think about the work of New, New Schools Venture Fund, investing in these very human oriented institutions that are 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 up against uh, changing kind of very long standing institutions, do you have to think similarly or or differently? from that traditional idea of investment return growth uh, growth model? Yes, it's a great question. And um, my maybe perhaps the satisfying answer is it's actually both. Um, we do take some principles from the venture capital model, which is we do have a period of time in which we're investing at a specific stage of an organization's development. And we and they together uh, craft what things are going to look like over the next two or three years, if indeed you know, they're successful. And then we work together to try to make that happen. And then, you know, as we go along, we're getting information that, you know, hopefully helps us readjust and, and, and get better. But at the end of, you know, the two or three year period, which is typically the time horizon of our investments, um, we are looking for a specific return, if you will. We, you know, think of it as an educational return. And, um, you know, it, it depends on which portfolio um, we're engaged in, you know, what, how we actually measure what those results will be that will indicate a return for us. You know, for instance, with our innovative schools, it's certainly um, about academic results and some of these, you know, additional expanded definition factors that I talked about earlier. And we're, you know, we're tracking those in our schools and they make some commitments about what they're aiming for. 
Um, and then we do everything we can to help them get there, but also help hold them accountable for those. Um, so in that instance, the, the, the way um, it's a little different from venture investing is, you know, there isn't a financial return at the end. We're a nonprofit. Most of the organ- vast majority of organizations we support are also nonprofits. Um, but where our um, sense of accountability as a an investor, if you will, comes from is, you know, we're an intermediary. We, we aren't a family foundation. Um, we have some very long time supporters, uh, high net worth individuals that help get new schools started. Uh, but their contributions are a very small part of our overall need. And so we raise money from many donors, um, foundations, uh, as well as high net worth individuals. And as we're making the case for the way we're going to put that money to work, um, we are committing to a set of outcomes to them. You know, here's what you can expect for the dollars that you're putting into the fund at new schools that then we're going to redeploy into entrepreneurs. And so, you know, our accountability back to our donors against a set of um, student outcome criteria for, uh, criteria for schools, you know, effectiveness and reach outcomes for a tech uh, organizations we might support, the number of um, diverse leaders, the, the percentage by which we increase uh, the number of black and Latino entrepreneurs and senior leaders over the next few years and having the data to know what the baseline is and how to track that over time. Like we're accountable to our donors uh, for those, um, for those uh, outcomes. And so, you know, it's kind of a, it's, it's the a proxy is the wrong word, but it's the um, uh, analogy, I guess, to uh, what a venture fund would have, which is, you know, they raise money from a bunch of limited partners and uh, mm. commit to a certain, you know, percentage of financial return based on those uh, investments that they'll make into companies. And so in a similar way, you know, that's how, that's how our fundraising pitch to our donors uh, works. We've got a set of outcomes. We're going to manage toward them. You leave it up to us uh, to have, you know, the, um, energy around pipeline development and the wisdom in terms of selection and the ability to support the entrepreneurs to produce the kind of outcomes they and we and you want. Um, and then, you know, uh, it's, um, it's on all of us to try to keep those interests aligned as we move forward. Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk a little bit more about your commitments around diversity, equity, and inclusion. I, I, um, so it sounds like uh, the development of of leaders of color is is one of the elements of the of your the outcomes you're looking for. Can you talk about others and other ways that you that ideas around equity, yeah. inclusion, diversity, um, and access uh, play into those uh, those measures? Yeah. Um, so you know, certainly the the uh, most direct way we're going at this, as you as you point out, is through our diverse leaders portfolio, where we're you know investing in pipeline organizations and new programs and existing pipeline organizations to help um, uh, strengthen that that um, preparation, support, development, placement of um, entrepreneurs and leaders of color. And so, yes, there's a a metric uh, around um, uh, you know how the existing current number of uh, diverse leaders in those kinds of positions is growing over time. Um, other ways that we, and I will also say in our other two portfolios, so, you know, we invest in innovative school teams as well as um, entrepreneurs creating tools and services. Um, and we um, think uh, very hard about how to build much more diverse pipelines of entrepreneurs in those areas so that as we're going through our diligence and selection processes and building a portfolio and cohorts of entrepreneurs, um, we are also really prioritizing supporting backing leaders of color in those two portfolios. And so we track that. Um, we, um, we have some internal goals about what we want those uh, portfolios to look like in terms of diversity and, and um, the way we think about tracking towards those numbers is building stronger pipelines and more access to our, to our, uh, to our pipeline, to our investment pipeline. The other things that we're, that we're tracking there externally, um, we actually have a survey in the field right now in partnership with Bellwether and a handful of education foundations, um, actually trying to assess some of the things you mentioned, you know, beyond representation, you know, what do we look like in terms of, you know, the mix of, um, racial and, uh, uh, race and ethnicity in terms of our teams, 
across about 200 education organizations. Um, we're, we're also trying to get at measures of inclusion in those organizations. It's one thing to have you know, a certain level of representation. It's another thing for everyone in the organization, regardless of what race and ethnicity they are or, or gender or sexual orientation, to feel as if they're working in an organization where they can bring their full self to work every day and contribute in their unique way authentically and productively as part of those, uh, as part of those teams. And so um, we're trying to get a right now kind of a baseline view of uh, among about 200, I think we would call them education reform organizations for lack of a better term right now. Um, what is that state of um, inclusion along with the state uh, of diversity? Um, and then we'll, you know, uh, I, I think a bunch of us can think, a bunch of organizations can think together about what, if anything, we might all try to do together to increase um, the um, presence of inclusion <laughs> in organizations that are also working, again, on diversity as in terms of representation. Um, the, the, uh, another, uh, you know, you, from an equity standpoint, when we think about organizations, uh, whether it's organizations we're investing in um, or kind of in this data set we're trying to create in collaboration with a lot of other partners, um, uh, inside our education organizations, the idea of equitable practices. So when it comes to hiring and promotion uh, and performance management, you know, what do our, what do our organizations look like? Um, we can be diverse and feel uh, more inclusive, but when push comes to shove and, uh, you know, um, their uh, pr promotion paths or, or uh, other kinds of, you know, HR policies are at play, um, how are people experiencing those uh, in terms of equity? So that's one way we're getting it, you know, everybody's calling it DEI these days, so diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, there's also the, you know, the, the uh, equity question when it comes to our students. And so, you know, we um, are, as New Schools has always been, um, still very much focused on um, the schools that we support um, serving uh, significant numbers of low-income kids uh, and Black and Latino and Native American kids. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we, we track numbers on that. I mean, that before I arrived a couple of years ago, the new school's portfolio of schools, um, the students in them, um, um, the, it was in the high 80s, 86, 87 percent of those students were low-income that were in those schools, um, represented about 170 or 180,000 students. And the um, number of black and Latino, or the percentage of black and Latino students uh, was in the low 90s, so 92, 93%. So New Schools has always uh, had a focus on supporting schools that serve um, uh, kids who historically have been dramatically underserved by, uh, by our schools. So that's one way to count. Um, but another way that, that we are thinking a lot about now is, um, you know, we want to have room especially since we're an innovation portfolio, to have teams of educators creating new schools um, to think um, about instructional models and you know, school models that might um, be focused on diverse by design. And so how do we um, actually you know, create schools where there is a much more diverse student body, and that means um, you know, a more evenly balanced, I don't know if evenly is the right way to say it, but more of a balance across different races and ethnicities uh, in those schools. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're tracking that uh, as well, because to us, you know, one aspect of diversity uh, includes uh, children of all races and ethnicities. And so are we seeing, we, and we think we are seeing some innovation um, in this you know, last couple of years where more and more um, teams who are trying to create new schools are also thinking about you know, how do we actually prepare kids to be uh, um, effective uh, and um, be effective in a much more diverse society and uh, kind of get at um, the, the notion of, you know, equitable access to diverse environments uh, for kids of, of all races and ethnicities. And so we'll see where that heads. I mean, it's still, you know, pretty early stages. There is kind of a diverse by design wing uh, of the charter school movement uh, right now um, that some of our entrepreneurs uh, are part of. We think it's, it's super interesting to watch that play out. And if, how would you advise or how do you advise young leaders who are looking at New Schools Venture Fund and saying, 
I think I think I want to be a part of that uh, someday or maybe next year. How does how does yeah. one assess when they're ready, and how do, how do you even start to to walk down the path of uh, toward entrepreneurship and potential partnership with uh, with no schools? Yeah. So, kind of on an individual level, you know, how do you start on the on the path to entrepreneurship? I mean, you know, I think um, for uh, for most um, entrepreneurs, the it, it, there's never like the perfect time, right? And so, you know, a, a lot of times when I talk to people who are earlier in their careers, um, you know, they're they're thinking about it from a resume building standpoint. You know, how do I get the exact right set of experiences that will uh, prove to uh, an investor or other supporters that I'm ready, you know, for entrepreneurship. And um, that's okay, but I would say that's not really um, the way we typically see really successful entrepreneurs get going. I mean, the the key is, you know, do you have um, an idea, uh, some kind of insight about how um, thing, how a school or an ed tech tool or, you know, whatever your, whatever your idea or passion is, uh, might actually, you know, work better for kids. And the advice I would give people is, um, you know, rather than focusing, um, so much on building your, um, credibility on paper, I would focus on testing out that idea. And so, you know, the most successful entrepreneurs we end up seeing, uh, in our portfolio now have had a year or two of trying out their idea in a safer context. So for instance, there are some um, incubator programs around the country. Um, you know, I'll use a couple of, as a, a couple as an example. I mean, 4.0 schools, uh, in new Orleans, uh, which is really serving entrepreneurs all over the country, even though Matt Candler and his organization are based down in new Orleans, you know, creates a fellowship experience where people keep their day jobs, but through kind of a curated um, uh, uh, experience over, you know, many months, have um, uh, kind of structured um, relationships in which they can try out their ideas, whether that's in a school or with a group of teachers, um, to give to, to give the entrepreneur better information. Because, you know, we can, one one thing I used to always say, I don't say it so much anymore, but I used to always say, you know, just because, you know, you have an idea for, um, you know, an ed tech product for a classroom that you think you would have liked to have had when you were a kid or a teacher, or that your old college roommate who did TFA and taught for two years thinks is a good idea doesn't mean your idea is a good one. It's an okay start. Um, you know, but there, there are, um, you know, there's a, a long path between having an insight like that and then trying it out with real human beings um, who would be, you know, the end user of that thing. And so if you've got an idea for a new school model that has some, you know, really innovative approach to you know, some aspect of instruction or to an entire instructional model. Increasingly, there are ways to try that out programmatically. Um, again, through pilot programs, uh, summer school experiences, after school experiences that are a little bit lower stakes. I just get, get you as an entrepreneur much, much more concrete, granular information about adjustments you might make, or maybe you've got it just right and are ready to go. So we look for those kinds of experiences when we look at entrepreneurs. Um, who are coming out of the gate with kind of nothing but a plan. What have you been doing for the last year, year and a half, um, that shows us you're serious about creating something that really is attuned to the needs of whoever your target audience is, whether that's students or teachers or parents. Um, you know, we're, we're looking for evidence that you have more than just, um, you know, a, a great idea that you, that you dreamed up. <laughs> That you mm-hmm. dreamed up, um, that you dreamed up in your in your current job, and you've really tried that out. It's interesting that Matt Candler offered the same advice on on the podcast, uh, saying, and Matt, as you know, has started over a hundred schools and um, yep. or helped to start over a hundred schools, and he said uh, essentially that if you're thinking about starting a school tomorrow, then the question I want to ask you is, where is the one hour version of your concept of your idea? Have you tested this out in a in a very low stakes environment with twenty students? Um, and so it's interesting to hear the the similarity in approach. Yeah, and we do. We are like minded with Matt on that for sure. And um, you know, again, with Matt's program and some others, they're on ramps to our pipeline. 
you know, we, we, um, you know, in the same way, you know, lots of say admissions processes work, uh, in all kinds of institutions or hiring processes work often, you know, what you're looking for, um, is validation, um, from earlier stages of vetting. And so people often come right into our pipeline with none of that and are very successful, but, you know, oftentimes and increasingly since some of these organizations are, are, um, are, are growing up, um, or again, around the country, um, those are kind of good shorthand markers for us. Okay. Well, you know, the, this team or this person, this duo maybe, um, uh, gets the fact that you're not going to get it right off the bat and that the quicker you're in the field, if you will, trying your thing out with, as I say, actual human beings, <laughs> you know, real children and teachers who, um, who you imagine are going to be well served by this thing you've dreamed up, you know, the, the sooner you've been willing to, to get at it um, and, and pilot that in more low stakes environments, the more, more confidence we have that as the slings and arrows of new enterprise creation uh, you know, uh, hit you as you go along, you're, you're going to, you're going to have the mindset to be able to persist, to adjust, to adapt. I mean, I think one of the, you know, I don't know if it's a maybe best, maybe I call it a best kept secret of entrepreneurship is it's, it's, or of, of venture investing, even in venture philanthropy, it's kind of about the idea and it's kind of about the team. Um, uh, what it's really about is the ability of the people on the team. So whether it's a single entrepreneur, which we rarely see anymore, um, usually by the time people get to us, they've got some version of a founding team, even if it's just one other person. Um, you know, the ability, what we're looking for is, to, is this team, because their idea, it sounds great. It's for sure incomplete. When the rubber hits the road or when they go through another year of, you know, deep uh, design and planning, for sure they're going to, encounter obstacles that, you know, that, that, um, demand that they change their mind about some things. Are you going to be able to do that? Are they learners? I mean, I think, you know, the best entrepreneurs are voracious and rapid learners and they treat information, especially negative feedback and information, uh, as just that data and information. Um, and you know, how wedded is someone to their perfect idea on paper uh, and how, or how willing are they to understand that there's a long road between the day you think you've got the idea nailed down on paper and the day you actually open the door to your schools or flip the switch on your ed tech product with some customers. Uh, and the thing we're really looking for is kind of learner mindset, adaptability, um, persistence, um, uh, a, a desire and, um, um, you know, passion for receiving uh, feedback and, you know, the willingness and practices around seeking it out and building that, building that into your design. And then I would say there's a tension because entrepreneurs really have to believe in their ideas because it's, it's super hard to do what entrepreneurs do <laughs> and go from nothing, literally nothing to something beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, there is also, you know, it's that tension of really continuing to hang on to and, and believe in the vision that motivated you to entrepreneurship in the first place. And look, sometimes we as investors are wrong. You know, we, we might be pushing a, a team to consider new ideas uh, or different ideas than the ones they have. And at the end of the day, they accept some of them and others, they do not, you know, they hang on to, to their idea. And at the end of the day, the way we look at it is, um, uh, they're, uh, that team are the ones that have to see it all the way through and we're going to offer our best guidance and judgment. Uh, but at the end of the day, they've got to make the choices that they believe are really gonna, you know, that, that are gonna, um, when put into practice, make the difference that they, uh, that they seek to make, uh, for kids. So there really is kind of a, a balance there, right? You gotta, gotta hold fast to what you believe and the power of the idea you think you have, but you also have to really be open to learn and make adjustments based on information, data, and advice that you're getting from others. Mm -hmm. Stacey, what are some of your favorite and most teaching uh, examples of failures? And I'd love it if you could share one that uh, is kind of a failure that you were personally involved with or, or had to do with something that you launched or, or, or were driving, and one that maybe you've experienced through, uh, through an investment or, or another member of the team, of your team. Yeah. Um, well, 
uh, I'll, I'll focus on uh, my biggest professional failure. How about that? Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, that I, uh, that I, um, learned a ton from and, and continue to reflect on and, and continue to learn from, uh, quite frankly, years later. And so, um, uh, some, some of your listeners will know and remember and others won't know, or perhaps won't remember that one of the big projects that my team, uh, was responsible for when I was at the Gates Foundation was something that eventually was called in bloom. Are you familiar with in bloom? Is that a, that a oh, project that, Okay. Nope, well, I'm not. Uh, if you were, it wouldn't have surprised you to hear earlier that it was my biggest professional failure. And so the the idea was that um, by you know bringing together a consortium of states who were part of Race to the Top and who were um, you know racing, if you will, over a couple of years to put plans into practice that they had for Race to the Top. A big aspect of those um, was something called an instructional improvement system. So they were going to have to build these, you know, big technology systems um, and in the states to make available to all of their uh, all of their districts. And a big part of that was um, uh, data integration. It's a very hard problem technically, uh, and uh, each of the states was unlikely to solve it um, elegantly on their own with the resources and expertise they had available to them. It's a very hard and expensive problem. Um, and the idea was that, you know, a lot of the existing, you know, big, uh, say, textbook publishers have some technology solutions for this problem, but they're not very good and they're proprietary. So it makes it a very difficult problem. And so what we um, were convinced we could help out with at the Gates Foundation was to back a common um, data sharing platform for all of these states. And we got a lot of things right, an awful lot of things right. Um, what we got wrong, which I completely own as a leader, um, is that in our effort to really support the states and maintain kind of their um, uh, norms of confidentiality and you know getting getting as much work done as, uh, behind the scenes as they could while 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 building the political support they needed internally in their own states. Um, we just kind of stepped back from that and uh, imagined that if each of the states on their own were doing that work, things would uh, would be fine. And it wasn't fair to those states. And in the end, it was um, you know a killer for the project. So we spent tens of millions of dollars at the Gates Foundation helping this really amazing breakthrough software get created that actually could do the thing. Uh, that everyone had struggled to figure out technically for a long time. So it was a, a, a massive technology innovation, piece of open source software that still exists, by the way, in the world. Um, but at the end of the day, the pushback started um, when the political winds in different states started to shift around Common Core and teacher evaluation. Uh, and when parents got concerned that there was some big data sharing platform <laughs> being built that no one had told them about, uh, and they were very much worried, obviously, about data privacy and security. And uh, we just handled it, handled all of the kind of political and communications part terribly and, um, you know, totally our fault and on us. And in the end, you know, absolutely killed the project and, you know, set states back uh, a few years. And, um, you know, certainly internally at, at, at Gates, I think, would be counted among, you know, one of the one of the biggest failures or, or missteps of, of the last few years. Not the only one, but but certainly uh, one of them and a very visible one. How does so that will, how does that translate yeah. into the into today's work for you? Yeah, and so for me, uh, you know, a, a big miss was we saw it as very much a technical project. You know, this isn't about politics. This isn't really even about policy. Like policy is already done. Uh, the politics are somebody else's problem, and the states seem to be uh, on that. And in fact, it seems like it would be inappropriate for us to try to you know, um, try to engage in any kind of political um, mobilization uh, that states might need on this. And so the way, it, the way it plays in today, I would say, is two things. Nothing is just a technical issue. Nothing. So whether we're you know, advising uh, entrepreneurs who are starting a new school in, uh, in a, a neighborhood that, that desperately needs better educational options for the parents there, you know, our um, advice and, and some of our accountability with those schools through the milestones they set, investment milestones they set, are all about early, deep, and authentic community and parent engagement. Not just trying to convince parents and 
uh, others in the community that your idea is a good one, but actually starting very early in engaging them in the process of uh, generating ideas and understanding what they would like to see from schools Mm -hmm. and helping create a through line for them about how their input has helped inform uh, the design and operation of the school. Um, Conceptually, kind of intellectually, uh, you know, I've always known that sounded like a good idea. Um, (laughs) I am, I am dogged about it now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of my, part of the lesson that I learned that I give to those, uh, to those entrepreneurs is it's not somebody else's job. Mm -hmm. You keep, I, I, I hear you about the advocacy organization or the parent organized, organizing organization that you're working with to get this done. And that's a great idea. And I'm also telling you, it is not nearly enough um, mm-hmm. to think that there's some arm's length or outsource relationship you can have on that. You got to get in the game on it yourself, um, mm-hmm. honor it, understand it, put it, put it to work on behalf you, of the kids you want to serve. And do you see that changing practice among your, um, your portfolio, your, your partners, the, the, the folks you invest yeah, in. What's in what's, yeah, what's interesting is, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't know if it's just kind of the you know um, kind of a shift in general in the way people are thinking about this topic um, in the field at large, or if we're kind of fortunate uh, in our in our the pipeline that we're seeing that you know we're seeing entrepreneurs who are prioritizing it. The good news is we're not having to make the case to a reluctant audience or to any reluctant entrepreneur. You know, that's that's not our our challenge. And it's very um, good news, I think. Um, but what, but we, what we are seeing is when there are so many other things to take care of, right? When there, I mean, st- I, there's, I can't, there's almost nothing harder in education than starting a new school, uh, maybe turning around a long time, <laughs> a long time, uh, failing one might be a little bit harder, but starting a new school is just hard. Um, uh, and so sometimes when push comes to shove, you know, this is back to, is this a technical solution or something that's kind of broader and more effective, uh, more affective or adaptive, um, you know the 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 work to really engage families in the idea generation and design can get put off um, in in uh, traded traded off to more urgent uh, problems that I have to take take care of today or, or or this week. So it's more about helping entrepreneurs stay focused on it, um, you know, creating support and accountability around it than it is having to convince them that it's important. You know, the other, the one other thing I'll say here, I, I know we're probably running a little short on time, but another lesson for me out of this that we try to, um, that we try to, I, I will say two, and I'll go quickly here, uh, lessons. One is when you are hearing from people, even people who you think have a incentive or a motive to um, want you to fail, when you're, when you start to hear criticism uh, that becomes a theme. So even though you're hearing it from, you know, three or four sources um, who you think are kind of out to get you or who don't really get what you're doing, you know, they really got it. Maybe they wouldn't criticize us. Um, but, you know, you hear the, you hear the same thing over and over. Listen to it. Listen to it. Because maybe they aren't well motivated. Maybe they do want you to fail. But perhaps what they have found is the weakest part of your idea or your organization or your thing or your technology, and they're using that to criticize you. However, it, it might be the thing that can take you down because they've focused on it for a reason. Um, I think it's, it's especially important if you're also hearing it from well-intended people um, who you think just don't get it. Like, pay attention to negative signals, um, even as you're trying to power through to the thing you want, because, you know, there was there, the mistakes we made, there, there was no reason we, we should have made them. They, they should not have been surprises because I can think of people who were trying in their very lovely and supportive <laughs> and elegant way to point them out to me a year before the less well-intended critics got momentum on those very same issues. And so, you gotta, you gotta listen. You gotta talk to people who don't, who don't agree with you. You have to take, you know, many of them seriously and really try to understand, uh, and and there and then adapt, you know, to what you're hearing. And then, the, you know, the other lesson. I mean, you know, for for me, I'm still thankful and grateful for this every day. When you're talking about entrepreneurship, you know, failure sucks. Like it's not fun. It's terrible. It's an awful experience in the end. <laughs> um, and you know, bruising. And identity uh, jarring, um, 
And yet, um, it's not the end of the world. Mm. It's not the end of the world. We fail. And, you know, I, I, I guess I and others engaged in that product project had a choice to retreat and do things that were less, um, um, visible, um, to take, you know, projects and, and jobs and, and positions that would get us kind of out of the limelight and a little off the, you know, a little, a little, uh, lower stakes, you know, less, less consequences for success or failure. Um, but, uh, what was, what's again, the reason I say one of the reasons I'm really grateful for what's surprising to me is that for people, uh, and, and funders who value entrepreneurship, if you do learn from even a spectacular failure, like the one that I was involved in, where literally tens of millions of dollars were spent with to no avail. Um, if, if you took a big risk, you did almost everything right. <laughs> you acknowledged the things that you could have done, should have done better, and where there were moments when you could have listened or paid attention and, and noticed them and made those ad- adjustments and can tell a compelling story about how that influences your work. Now you will continue to have enormous opportunities uh, to make a difference in, in education, uh, entrepreneurship, if you will take them, you know, if, mm-hmm. if you'll get back up, um, learn the lessons, um, maybe take a nap, <laughs> get some rest um, <laughs> and, and, you know, be, be ready to get back at it. Those, those opportunities uh, will will come again, and so I think you know for all of us, whether it's in entrepreneurship or kind of more uh, kind of traditional leadership and management, uh, I think the fear of failure holds us back sometimes from the most important things we could be doing, and to the degree that we can resolve or come to peace, uh, come to grips with the idea that failure is not the end of the line, uh, professionally or otherwise. Um, the more bold we'll be and in, in terms of the positions we're willing to take, the organizations we're willing, we're willing to start, the stands we're willing to take um, and uh, understand that, you know, failure is part of um, innovation, part of um, um, trying new things. And, you know, hopefully what we do is make different mistakes and fail at new things, <laughs> not the same mistakes and the, and the same failure over and over. <laughs> Hopefully newer, bigger, and better mistakes. <laughs> That's right. Stacey, right. I, can't, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. I just, I find your insights so personally inspiring. So thank you. I just, I want to ask you if we can take a few more minutes, just to ask you one or two more questions. Um, the first being, I want to dig in a little bit on how you organize your day keep it all together? Are there practices, apps, tools, bit of technology, or a way that you've learned to, um, to drive both efficiency and effectiveness in, uh, across your life? Yes. So I don't have any special apps that I use. I mean, I use, you know, just the, the regular Microsoft Office tools that, that we have at, at new schools. Um, we are completely web-based now, 365, which is nice because I can use them across all my devices. That has been a huge step forward, in, you know, for me in terms of my own productivity is to uh, be able to get whatever I need to get done on multiple devices and wherever I'm sitting. And I'm sure that's similar to what, what lots of people are, are experiencing. So I, I don't have any, uh, you know, any secret uh, um, apps to tell you about. I will say I do, you know, I do have a couple of systems that I use um, that have kind of been creating in collaboration with, with assistants over the years and, you know, kind of got a version of it now that's working. And um, one thing, because I do have so much um, incoming, uh, I have so many incoming requests for my time and my attention um, that my biggest risk is losing track of things. And I I assume lots of people deal with this. Um, And so um, being able to both work asynchronously, but also not lose track of things that I think I'm going to get to later um, is, 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 you know, just a a real challenge. It's always a big challenge for me. So I, um, I, on Tuesdays and Thursdays every week at the end of the workday, my assistant sends something to me. She and I call it my check-in list. But it's it's really kind of a very high level priorities and to do list, and nothing comes off that list until I complete it. And it might be 
when, you know, when you guys were trying to schedule this with me, you know, that would have remained on there until, <laughs> until we got it sorted. Um, it could be, you know, um, a new, uh, uh, part of, uh, one of our investment strategies, you know, we're going to open up a new, um, line of, of funding for particular kinds of organizations. And there's a bunch of, they've written a bunch of stuff about it and they want me to read it before we meet in a couple of weeks. It goes on there. So that even though I don't plan on reading it till Saturday, if Saturday comes around, I might forget about it. So we make sure that that, that goes on there. So, so I can go to that. Everything I need to do that's not done yet is on there, and it's dynamic, right? So every couple of days is current. Um, and that has just been over the last, I would say, five or six years. I had a wonderful assistant at the Gates Foundation named Ryoko Molenkamp who came up with this brainchild of an idea and it's, it took some time and iteration, and and you know we've we've got it to a good good place now at new schools uh, that it's that it's working really well. So people send me stuff all the time, and if I can get to it right away, I do. If I can't, I know where it is. I know where to go find it. Um, and it also just helps me super efficient when I have 15 minutes to work on some things. I can go to that list and knock off the few things that'll take me 15 minutes to knock them off. But the things that are going to take me a few hours stay there so that so that when I get that kind of time, I can go back to it. That's very so that's, inspiring. That's one thing. Homegrown. Homegrown. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly not perfect. I will say sometimes I'm quite churlish about having to sit down and do it. Um, and I try not to take that out on other human beings in my life uh, at work or otherwise um, and keep that to myself because, um, after all, I did create it, and I do make everybody use it. So that's all my fault now that I have this long list of things I have to look at. Um, <laughs> so it's a little inside into me. So it's all a lot of you know griping to myself about it. Um, so that that's one thing. I'll say another thing. I am just you know in general anti-meeting. You know I think um, so. One of one of uh, my mentors when I joined New Schools was a guy named Dave Goldberg. He was the CEO of SurveyMonkey. Um, uh, married to Cheryl Sandberg, who's the CEO at Facebook, and Dave was on the New Schools board. He passed away about a year and a half ago, uh, and we missed him an awful lot. But you know, one of the things that he told me uh, as I was ramping up at New Schools, he said, you know, one of the things we worried about at you is you worked in, about you is that you had worked in a lot of big organizations, so Gates Foundation's huge organization, slightly bureaucratic, you know, not as bureaucratic as universities can be. I had been on the faculty at a university. You know, I'd worked at a big Fortune 500 company. So you got some little entrepreneurship in here, but you've also worked at some big companies. So, like, I find often that people who come from big companies think that going to meetings is work. And, you know, um, you know if you're going to be flexible and nimble and creative and have time to think and write and, um, you know, uh, discern and recognize patterns – you can't sit in meetings all day. Yes. It's just mind-numbing. Um, and so trying to figure out ways to get things done that still give my team and you know, uh, people on their teams um, time with me um, so that we can both you know, get to know each other but also share ideas and get more comfortable you know, uh, kind of uh, having open dialogue and risk-free ways of, of sharing, uh, both critique and, and, um, and praise. How can we do that without everything having to be mm-hmm. a meeting? And so I will say that I just kind of threw a little mini fit a couple of a couple of weeks ago, uh, that I'm spending too much time in meetings and it, you know, it's all with good intentions. People think they're saving me time by trying to have meetings with heavy agendas where we can get a lot done in 90 minutes. But, you know, if I have, five 90 minute meetings today, my whole, my whole day's gone. Um, so, um, you know, constantly thinking about, you know, whether it's that mechanism of my check-in list and ways of getting things done asynchronously so that actually we have more time to be with each other more informally and have ad hoc creative discussions. And for me to have time to get pulled into, you know, a team workroom when they're whiteboarding something, when I can contribute for 15 or 20 minutes, you know, if I'm in meetings all day, I never get to do that. Um, and that's for me, the real work, right? That's where I can. So just, you know, I don't have a big solution for people other than to say to the degree that you can get something done without having a meeting, whether it's in person on the phone or, uh, or over video, try to do it. Try not to get super scheduled, um, uh, in, into meetings. And so that's, uh, for me, uh, a kind of a version of a, of a productivity mindset. Um, it's a little bit different. You know, I, I'm, um, I'm grateful for the advice that I had 
from Dave about that. And we do try to do it at new schools, but it's, it's just so interesting how the pull to meetings uh, is, is so strong. Uh, it reminds me of the, so, the, the book Deep Work, I think, uh, is a very good example of, yeah. of advice, right? That's right. Well, I think that's one right. I think it's a great tip. One last question for you, Stacey, while we have you. What advice would you give to your 23-year-old self? Oh, my goodness, my 23-year-old self. Um, the advice I would have given, that I would give to my 23-year-old self would have been to, taught, to, to teach for a few more years. Um, than, than I did, uh, in, in a high school. And, um, I didn't realize, uh, honestly did not realize at the time that I would end up spending the vast majority of my career in K-12 public education. Um, I liked teaching, uh, but needed to move on for financial reason, for financial reasons and, and other, um, other professional goals. At least that's what I thought. Uh, and I was in a, I was in a hurry to do that, um, and thought that the path I was going to be on was, uh, going to be uh, in the private sector and, and, you know, potentially in politics. That's what I thought back then at 23. Um, and, um, thought, you know, had very clear ideas about, uh, about what I needed to be doing on the way to that. Um, and, you know, in, uh, on reflection, um, you know, sooner than today, I, 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 would ha I, the advice I would have given myself was you know, teach for a few more years. You have, you know, so much more to experience and learn, um, in this context and in this environment that you don't realize it yet, but that is going to be enormously helpful to you later. So that's one piece of advice. Uh, the other is I would have just, I had so much certainty about so many things <laughs> from the time I was somewhere in my teens, I would say until I was, you know, probably 30 or so um, about not so many things about everything, you know, so much certainty. Um, and uh, you know, I, I, I thought things needed to be uh, things were uh, that I had opinions about were a hundred percent or zero. Um, and so I wish I had understood what it meant to have a learner mindset um, and to uh, embrace uncertainty and listening and learning um, earlier than my early 30s uh, because I would have just been a much wiser person much more quickly and uh, certainly would have been, I think, able to have much more impact in my career and in my life. Uh, a lot earlier if I hadn't been just so darn sure that I was right about so many things so early. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, I, I, can, I can see my 23-year-old self so sure, uh, so righteous and indignant about so many things uh, that needed to be different than they were and that were, you know, in my mind, very true and, and the ways in which that caused me to navigate professionally in my uh, and, you know, personal and professional relationships and choices I made about what to do next that, um, I, I wish, I, I wish I had my 52 year old self to advise my 22 year old self, uh, about how wonderful, uh, and rich, um, all aspects of life became, uh, in my early thirties when I, um, shifted, uh, shifted my point of view about who I wanted to be and, and how the world worked and, and what it meant to really be in fellowship with people uh, and trying to figure things out and, and, and learn and grow. And so that's, that's certainly the advice I would, I would give to myself back then. It's incredible advice. Stacey, I see why you're such a gifted and appreciated teacher, um, mentor, and investor and entrepreneur. I just cannot tell you how much I appreciate your, your generosity uh, with us today. And I hope that we can, uh, we can follow up this conversation again. I'd like to do that. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. Wonderful. Stacy. thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Like this interview? Follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also visit www.educationalequity.org slash leaders table for more resources to grow your impact. Tweet us your questions for future interviews at Lee underscore national. Thanks so much. Your host at the Leaders Table is Jason Urenz. I am your producer, Molly Stevens. And thanks to John Stevens for our music and editing. 